Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome to episode four of the Gen Z GOP podcast. I'm Mike Brodo, joined as always by my co-hosts, Ryan Doucette and John Olds, and also today by our trade policy advisor here at Gen Z GOP, Colton Scrutter. Hey, everyone. So today we're going to be talking about trade. It's a very important topic, especially within the Republican Party. There's a big internal debate about where the party and the country should go in terms of this issue. Over the past few years, with the rise of Donald Trump and his presidency, we've seen protectionism and the populist right gain a stronghold in the movement, attacking what has normally been a free trade party. So today we'd like to take 40 minutes or so to promote what we believe is free trade and pushing it back against protectionism, but not just rehashing old debates about trade liberalization, but trying to embrace what is good about trade and using those benefits but also correcting some of the downsides, such as the loss of jobs and manufacturing in the Rust Belt. But before we get started in our episode, today we are going to highlight a new section that we will be doing in our podcast, and that's our mean tweet section, where we each pull a tweet that we found particularly funny and kind of talk about it and, you know, highlight it. So my tweet, which I kind of laughed at, was uh, a not-so-great reply to one of our tweets and said, Let's remember what principles America was founded on, enacting Israeli foreign policy in the Middle East, importing immigrants to displace American workers, making sure black people like us, and keeping the cokes happy so we can buy more sweet pocket protectors. And after I read this, I was like, what is a pocket protector? So, you know, you learn something new every day. It's a a lining for your your pocket. It's It's a little holster. Um, I don't know. I mean, I certainly wake up every day and say, boy, how can I please the Koch brothers? Anyway, so so another tweet that was just lovely and completely devoid of any sort of reality was um, someone wrote, episode three, why Bill Crystal is always right. And the irony there is episode three was literally about how we shouldn't burn down the current Republican Party completely. And that is literally what Bill Kristol wants to do, or at least people of his ilk want to do. I just thought that was a funny assessment. Um, but, you know, people tried to uh, to guess what this episode would be about. And obviously they were off base as usual, but uh, we're happy to have Colton here and we're looking forward to a great discussion on trade. Yeah. So my tweet, I'll preface it as it's not funny at face value because it's riddled with anti-Semitism and homophobia, which is embodied in a lot of the criticism that we receive. I only find it funny that this is the criticism that we're getting from a lot of people on the far right. So I'll read it here. It says, is Gen Z GOP anything more than a pack of Jews and gays who no one likes anyway? It reminds me of the never Trump guys who never managed to do anything but attract a fringe even smaller than Richard Spencer's despite massive funding. So yes, it's not funny. These these comments are disheartening and disgusting, but it gives us a lot of credence and strength to continue doing what we're doing, because if these are the enemies that we're going to have, we know that we're on the right path. So we announced that Colton, our trade policy advisor here at Gen Z GOP, is going to be joining us today. So I'm going to give him a few minutes here to introduce himself and tell him about the book that he's been working on and why this issue means so much to him. Thanks, Mike. 
so like um, like you mentioned, I'm coming on as the trade policy advisor. I started working about seven years ago in my family's cabinet manufacturing company. I started sweeping the floors and um, learning how to build cabinets, but ultimately we were impacted by a tariff um, in 2018. This had huge results for our supply chain and I was frustrated. I was in an effort to understand what was going on. I started researching trade and learning about, especially how trade impacts small businesses like ours. So I ended up writing a book on it. um, And we'll touch on it on it later because it serves as a great case study for how these policies impact a small business. Now, just to be clear, we put so much more quantitative and macroeconomic research into this too. So we're not just making an argument based off of one case study, but it adds a face to, to tariffs. We think of tariffs as this large macroeconomic cure-all for our trade issues, but really they, in, they affect individuals. And that's what we're going to talk about later today too. And what we like to do at Gen Z GOP, which I think is um, super important, is we like to kind of lay out some key terms and definitions and create a jumping off point for a discussion that we're about to have. So what I want to do really quickly is just talk about some things like free trade and tariffs and uh, comparative advantage and the stages of growth just really quickly. Um, So a free trade agreement, uh, just so everybody is, is on the same page is an agreement between two or more nations um, that essentially just reduces barriers to imports and exports imports being um, say the United States is the, uh, the home country. They are buying goods from say Canada, they're importing goods and exporting goods. The United States would be selling goods to Canada. A tariff is what gets levied in a situation where trade is not free. It's uh, essentially a tax on imports and exports. And these tariffs, as we will discuss later, are usually put in place to protect domestic industry. They are put in place under the guise of, we're protecting our workers, we're protecting um, our manufacturing industry, and we do not wanna see the industries that may be getting hurt by market forces where the home country's government is trying to protect domestic industry. And what I mean by that is you you may have an industry that is dying or the free market is um, having a a bit of uh, creative destruction, whatever you want to call it. And the tariff goes into place ostensibly to protect domestic workers and and industries. So that's a tariff. And then another interesting concept that I came across as we were preparing for this episode is the five stages of growth. And so the five stages of growth were uh, developed by a gentleman named Rousteau. And what they essentially do is they chronicle the the progression of an economy as it develops. And though there are plenty of criticisms of this theory, it does sort of hold true in the United States. And basically what these five stages are, are you know the traditional society, bare bones, then the preconditions for takeoff. And those are you know liberalizing one's economy, 
uh, developing a certain form of government to that is best conducive to economic growth. Then there's the takeoff then the drive to maturity, and then what Rousteau calls the age of high mass consumption, which uh, he posits and many people posit that this is where we're at now with many Western nations. The age of high mass consumption, which is essentially where uh, Western nations are today, uh, where there's a decent degree of economic security, a decent degree of purchasing power, and um, the quality of goods across all income deciles is somewhat good. And there is a sixth stage, which is maybe where we're going, maybe where we're not going. It's sort of up for debate, but there's this beyond consumption debate where their focus is more on the quality of a good. And um, we focus less on mass consumption, but more on, uh, you know, the quality of a good. And then an offshoot of that, of course, is uh, how just is the good. And we'll that's a conversation for another day, but uh, those, that's definitely an interesting th theoretical framework for us to work with in trade. And then finally, uh, there is the concept of comparative advantage, which will be referred to fairly often today. And it's a really cool concept that is uh, misunderstood, misremembered from your Econ 101 class. And it's really important to just kind of nail down why we talk about comparative advantage. In a nutshell, what comparative advantage is, is it refers to a country that has a lower opportunity cost than its neighbor to produce a good. Now, it's not lower overall costs, lower opportunity cost. So if I produce hand sanitizer and masks, but I'm, I'm far better at producing masks, comparative advantage would say, well, let's let my neighbor focus on hand sanitizer and I'll do the masks, that kind of thing. Um, and that's a really important theoretical underpinning of why we trade and why um, trade is so important. So with that, I want to turn it over to Mike for a bit of a uh, rundown of our current situation, um, which is unique and, uh, as always, devoid of any sort of nuance um, but I think we're going to have a good rundown here. Yeah. So what we're trying to push here in this podcast is obviously very basic level information because this is a topic that has been studied for decades. There are entire courses and majors on this subject. But what we're going to try to do in these 40 minutes is make our case for why free trade is a positive good, but not perfect, and why protectionism is not the path that this party in this country should be pursuing and how some of the claims made to support protectionism may be misdiagnoses of the problem itself. So people may hear this episode and try to pick apart at our argument about why we didn't fully cover it in its breadth, and, and that's understandable because we can't get to all that today, but we're going to try to do our best to push forward what we believe is the right solution. We're trying to stake a claim here in this debate that is going on in the party, and we want to start a conversation. That's the point of this podcast is to stir conversation, try to inform our listeners on these issues so that they can go on and do their own research in nuanced, informed policy discussions. 
So I want to just read a quote here from two Brookings scholars, Meltzer and Solis, that they published in The Hill a few years back to set up the political discussion here that Ryan will jump into on why protectionism seems to be so palatable for people in the party, especially people that have been disaffected by the negative consequences of free trade. And it reads as the following. Trump has identified the need to help working class Americans. This should be a key priority for any administration, but it cannot be achieved by misdiagnosing the problem and opting for counterproductive solutions. Raising tariffs will destroy trade-dependent jobs and disproportionately tax lower-income Americans who depend on low-cost daily necessities. Moreover, the loss of manufacturing jobs in the United States is fundamentally driven by technological change like automation, with import competition playing a smaller role. So this is kind of framing the debate that we're going to have today, and we'll jump into later, but I'll let Ryan jump in to address why protectionism has been so popular among the party in recent years. Thanks, Mike, for that introduction. So when we look at protectionism, we kind of view it as, you know, a reactionary response to something as difficult as like losing one's job. And we sympathize with that. Like, I think we've all been through experiences where we've seen, you know, someone in our family or a close friend lose a job and it's, you know, disappointing. And it's like, we really sympathize with that. And that's like a huge issue going on in this country. So we've seen like politicians kind of take advantage of that. And in recent years, we've witnessed the United States and our nation's politics move quickly towards a populist approach and embrace protectionism over free trade. You know, as I mentioned, like we have politicians like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump persuading their audiences that they will bring jobs back to the United States and end trade deals that they claim to hurt American workers. But, you know, these protectionist view tariffs and anti-trade policy as a way to protect American jobs and manufacturing. And that's, you know, inherently not a good view. um, Study after study shows that protectionism inevitably actually hurts the economy. And as John mentioned, it's just an extra tax that, you know, American consumers have to face and that the average worker will also face, as like, you know, Colton mentioned. And I think... So we all share the belief that, you know, American jobs are good. Like we all share that common understanding that, you know, we should promote American jobs. However, we kind of diverge on the concept. Should we protect, you know, jobs in America that simply are not really here anymore? And that kind of leads into the conversation that like in recent years, one of the largest failures is that, you know, we have made and presented trade as a method to improve competition in the market while dismissing the effects it may have downstream on a lot of the workers and a lot of the communities across the country. You know, this, this is even true after all the work that the United States government and other agencies have done to promote, um, you know, to help promote programs that help trade impacted workers. Yet this still stands true. We need to start presenting trade as a means to create more jobs, which it is. To the average worker, competition is irrelevant when they have no job. You know, we can say that trade promotes competition and trade helps the market, but that simply doesn't change the fact that, you know, Joe in Michigan doesn't have a job because his auto plant closed down. Like, that doesn't change the fact. Rather, we need to start refocusing our mission instead of helping the outcome of trade and rather start working on the opportunity and, you know, equipping people with 
like the right type of education and the right type of skills to like work in this ever so changing economy. So, you know, we need to refocus the mission of trade and that will take a lot of time, uh, but it will allow the United States to seize the moment and, you know, turn to promote programs and initiatives to retrain workers and address our growing skills deficit, which will inherently help our economy. And we'll see it like throughout our communities across the nation. So there's a small quote here that ties this in more to the lobbying power of interest that connects the concentrated versus aggregate interests from a book called Specialization in Trade by Arnold Kling. And it says this, because we specialize in production, our well-being is much more affected by changes in the market for what we produce than it is in changes in the market for any one of the many goods and services that we consume. That makes us strongly disposed to favor restrictions that restrict competition in the market where we produce. Although we have a preference for free trade in the markets where we consume, the preference is less focused and less intense. As a consequence, political lobbyists representing producer interests are more heavily engaged than our lobbyists for consumer interests. In turn, that difference can lead to a regulatory process that favors incumbent producers to the detriment of consumers and new would-be producers. So what this quote is adding to the mix is that it's explaining concentrated lobbying interests in the same way of concentrating voting interests. When people are faced with a situation, they are going to vote what is in their best interest that has the biggest impact on them, which protectionism does help certain workers in these industries such as manufacturing. But what we're trying to say today is that we can still reap the benefits the aggregate economy receives from free trade, which results in larger purchasing power for especially lower income Americans so that they can afford more goods at lower prices, while still not neglecting the fact that many folks in the manufacturing sectors are losing their jobs. So we want to reap what we say arbitrarily is the 90% good of trade while still correcting the 10% that is bad and sympathizing that those are real job losses. But we believe that protectionism is the wrong way to go about this because then we lose that 90% that is good that really helps Americans consume more products that are necessary for their livelihood at lower prices. So just to jump off that, well, let's get into the meat of the argument here. I'll have Colton discuss why protectionism has been a flawed policy for the United States and the detrimental impacts that this response policy-wise has had on the country, the economy, and our policies as a whole. Thanks, Mike. So as we talk about why tariffs are bad, we need to hit the nail on the head first. And there's some confusion. On May 5th, 2019, President Trump tweeted, quote, China has been paying tariffs to the USA of 25% on $50 billion of high tech and 10% on $200 billion of other goods. This tweet is pretty confusing and obscures what American businesses and consumers are actually facing. China is not paying the tariffs in the literal sense of the word. They are not writing a check to the United States government. Rather, that's businesses that do. When a business in the United States imports a product from China, they have three weeks to pay the tariff on that. So they will write a check to the United States Treasury. So we need to remember as we're going into this that it's American businesses that are paying the tariffs. And what, what do companies do when they have an extra cost? They pass that along to the consumer. So like University of California professor Catherine Russ says, tariffs are like a hidden sales tax. It does not appear on your receipt, but comes out of your pocket nonetheless, since it's embedded in there. 
And this ultimately has a pretty high impact on American consumers. The average American family lost $2,031 in 2018 because of tariffs. So tariffs impose an immense cost on consumers. So from a company's perspective, first, tariffs impose a cash flow issue. 82% of small businesses go out, go out of business because cash flows. They might be profitable in the long run, but if they can't afford to pay their loans, then they go under. And because tariffs are due so quickly from when, they're, from when the product's imported, companies might not sell the product they imported for months after. So they have to figure out how to pay, um, pay the tariff quickly. It also increases costs. Some companies that I interviewed for my book said, hey, we can't compete if we raise our prices. So we have to pay the tariffs ourselves. And then that, that company loses money. It's not China that's losing money or paying. It's the, it's a small business in the United States. Tariffs also increase instability. And this is one of the big things my family's company um, experienced. In 2018, we went to China to buy plywood for our cabinets. We were already buying plywood from cabinets or from China, but we were going to import it directly from the factory instead of their distributor. And this would allow us to build more cabinets in the United States and actually compete with Chinese cabinets. But then the United States put a tariff on Chinese plywood, which completely destroyed our supply chain after a small business like us has, has invested in it. So what do we do? We went to Capitol Hill, like any good old American, to talk, try to talk with our congressmen, naive in thinking that maybe this would help. We sat down with Congressman Kenny Marchant from Texas, our congressman, and he said, sure, yeah, maybe we can help, but I'm going to need to hire, you're going to need to hire a trade lobbyist. That's going to cost you about forty dollars to $50,000. And it would be a total gamble whether we would get any results from that. So small businesses um, can't do these gambles, so they're ultimately at the, at the mercy of the president in tariffs. Now, broadening the scope from companies to the whole economy, we see that trade is particularly good for lower income Americans. They gain the, the bottom 10% of Americans in terms of income gain 62% of purchasing, purchasing power because of trade. This drops off to 29% for the average American and down to 3% for the top 10% of income. So this shows that trade is good, especially for um, for low-income people. It helps make products available, but tariffs throttle back on that. Tariffs are taxes that Americans pay, and they're restrictions on trade. So any of the goodness that we get from trade, tariffs pull back on. They don't only affect imports either. When the United States issued tariffs on other countries, those countries pushed back. They levied retaliatory tariffs which made the U.S.'s exports fall. The Senate Finance Committee reported that Canada gave a retaliatory tariff um, worth $12.6 billion, Mexico $3.6 billion, Turkey $1.8 billion, the EU $7.1 billion, India $1.3 billion, and China $2.7 billion. So when these countries retaliated with tariffs, United States exports fell. And this is particularly concerning because the United 11 million jobs, that's close to 10% of all jobs in the United States are dependent on exports. That's actually a lot more than we have lost from 
jobs going overseas. By creating a trade war and having these high tariffs, the United States is putting itself in a bind. We're burdening our companies and our consumers with this increased tax. $2,031 for the average American family. That's 3% of the American median income. This isn't a small cost. So we're hurting on the import side. And then once other countries retaliate, retaliate because we don't operate in a vacuum, we miss out on export opportunities. So we've talked a lot so far about this increase in purchasing power and how trade affects growth and how trade affects jobs. And before we continue, I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that there is a growing set of voices in American politics that sees economic growth, job growth, um, you know, increasing the purchasing power for the poor, they see that as kind of secondary if we are losing our values, our traditional values. And I, I get, I get it. I understand what people are trying to say here that, you know, if, if, if we're just going to become a bunch of, you know, consumerists that, you know, we might lose sight of our values and, you know, the worth that we put on family and such, uh, or our civil society institutions. And I understand that, but, you know, I think of someone like Colton who, who I know is who goes to church and he's got a great family and he's been hurt by trade. And, and obviously this is anecdotal, but I don't think Colton would claim that because of his tariffs, his family got any more moral. In fact, they were just hurt. Yeah. Would you agree, would you agree with that, Colton? Absolutely. I I, I don't see the the relationship here. Um, it, it's to me it, it's it's shocking that that's an argument that's even made because it's completely unrelated to like any experience that I've had or that frankly any business I've talked to in writing my book has experienced. And you know, again, at risk of of droning on with with silly econ things well nothing in econ is silly we should never say that i should slap myself on the wrist for that but um you have this concept of time right and time has value and if we have greater purchasing power and families have greater economic security because of trade a lot of the reason that some of these societal quote unquote, defects are occurring is because in America, there are way too many people that have to have two sets of incomes in order to make ends meet. When in the past, it would be, there would be one breadwinner and someone would stay home with the kids and you'd be able to raise a family. You wouldn't have to farm out your parenting necessarily. But um, that's a conversation for another day. There's a ton of ink spilled on, on that. Um, it does serve as a good kind of segue into the acknowledgement that there, while trade is about, you know, we'll call it 90% good. That's an arbitrary number, of course. While trade is about 90% good, there are market imperfections that we need to address. And I guess what we're trying to say is, in a nutshell, as opposed to throwing out the 90% good stuff to save the 10%, why don't we address the 10% and keep the 90% that may be good? So there are a number of uh, 
caveats here. Uh, the first is we absolutely need to be in investing in retraining our workforce to meet the economy of the 21st century. Uh, this will improve the quality of life and um, it will serve as a way to mitigate the increase in frictional unemployment in the short run. The second is there's got to be some sort of uh, way to address national security interests. Um, you know, with the COVID pandemic, we've seen the negative effects of having our supply chain uh, farmed out to China that happens to be the bad actor uh, during the pandemic. And then, you know, we have rare earth metals, which Senator Marco Rubio talks about all the time. That's, you know, important to our tech sector. Um, and then, of course, defense, you know, America should be producing its, its defense products. But ultimately, the market is best at allocating resources. And generally speaking, as Republicans and as people on the right, we don't like government tweaking things. We, we don't think that command and control approaches, hint, hint, tariffs, are a good idea. In fact, we, we've acknowledged broadly that command and control policies are unsustainable. I mean, just look at this, the Soviet Union. Um, but let's address the small tweaks that we need to make to the market as opposed to throwing that all out the window and, and just, you know, having some faraway bureaucrat in Washington pull this, the strings of the uh, American economy vis-a-vis -vis trade. We've talked a lot about the nuances of trade, the positives, the negatives, and why tariffs are a poor response. But in general, we're making the argument that free trade is a net positive on the economy. So let's dive in here to how this is operationalized. What at the core makes free trade so good for the American economy, the American consumer, and actually ultimately the American worker? So the main contribution of trade stems from enhancing competitiveness. This may sound familiar to you when we talk about capitalism more broadly. In these capitalist versus socialist debates, us on the free market capitalist side on the right, for the most part now, argue that when we reduce barriers like government intervention to production, to trade, it allows companies to compete with one another. And that results in competition, which creates better products through innovation. And it makes those products more available at lower prices as a result of competition. So trade dismantles these government-induced monopolies and inflated prices and helps disseminate new ideas and technologies that propel future growth because there's that incentive to profit, but that ultimately results in a net positive because that incentive to profit results in lower prices and better products for the economy at large. And we've talked about this, this reduction in the cost of living and higher living standards that result are a direct result of trade. There are more goods and services, and I don't just mean luxury items, I mean essential goods and services that American consumers and workers need to live. And that's what we get from trade. Actually, free trade disproportionately in a positive way helps lower income and middle income people in the United States. Because lower income consumers spend a larger share of their disposable income on heavily traded food and clothing items, while you know the higher consumers would spend more of their spending on services, which are harder to trade, things like you know luxury spa treatments and whatnot, whereas the lower income consumers might need to buy imported food, clothing, and the like. And as a result of trade, they can buy more of those essential items at lower costs. 
So this actually implies that international trade, contrary to what the protectionist populist right is saying, is more beneficial to lower middle class consumers, not the uber wealthy multinational corporation CEOs. So trade in the end actually helps the majority of Americans. In a Brookings piece uh, by Miria Solis, she writes that tariff elimination actually has a pro-poor bias. It counters this narrative that free trade only benefits the wealthy. It actually benefits average Americans more. And protectionist measures, as Colton said, could cost millions of Americans their means of livelihood, their ability to consume those goods. Additionally, and Colton mentioned this too about exports, having free trade allows domestic industries, which create millions of jobs in the United States, to service global demand and sell their American-made products to a wider range of consumers. 95% of people in the world live outside of the United States. So why should we be promoting policies that restrict American goods to the domestic market? We can help those American workers in the export sector sell their products to a wider range of people. This creates jobs in the United States in the export sector. I know these stats are a little bit outdated, but in 2014, free trade policies in the export sector were responsible for 11.6 million jobs and 6.8 million of them were in the goods sector alone. So that's involved in manufacturing products that we make in the United States and service to the global economy. Additionally, we talk about, and our critics on the populist side say that free trade lowers wages. In fact, the export sector in the United States has significantly higher wages than other sectors. So what we're trying to make the argument here, and it's a big argument in economics, development economics, trade economics, that we as a developed, advanced economy in the United States import the raw materials, the low tech, for example, wood, like what Colton's family imports. And then we produce high tech, more complicated things in the United States, cabinets, cars, computer chips, airplanes, a list of things. That's what industrial advanced economies do. But we cannot sell those advanced products and use our comparative advantage to benefit workers that produce those things if we are not able to import the inputs for those at lower costs. That's the benefit of trade. So it actually helps American jobs in the sectors that we are comparatively better at and which actually lead to more value added in the end. Absolutely, Mike. Um, one of the most troubling things that we're seeing in the United States trade policy is that it actually disadvantages some American manufacturers because they can't access those raw materials without paying a tariff. There's a pot and pan manufacturer in the Midwest that import used to import aluminum from China to make their pots in the United States. And they were competing with German firms. So these the companies in Germany would import the same aluminum from Canada to Germany, make the pot, and then import it into the United States. This domestic company would um, import the aluminum from Canada into the United States, manufacture the pots and pans here, so creating those manufacturing jobs that we say we're after, and then sell it. The problem was the German company didn't have to pay a tariff on um, Canadian aluminum, but the American company did like 25%. So it had to increase its prices. Well, the German company didn't. So these trade policies that are supposed to boost manufacturing, 
because they're on raw materials, actually cut it down in the United States. Absolutely, Colton. So let's continue this argument here and let's add some nuance, big nuance alert. International trade creates and destroys jobs. So we've acknowledged the destruction part. We are not uh, tossing that aside and saying it's not important. But let's look first at the positive on the job side of trade. So sectors that are internationally competitive thrive. We've talked about that comparative advantage. This is a big topic in development economics where I more focus my studies on. Uh, There's a reason that the Asian tiger countries uh, in East Asia developed in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, such as South Korea, in that they promoted the sectors that were competitive and did well, and they didn't prop up industries that were not going to be competitive. There's a reason that countries such in South America or the Soviet Union did not do well in the end. It's because the government intervened in sectors that were not competitive, and they propped them up time and time again, even though they could not profit. And in the end, that becomes more and more expensive to do so, and you lose out on the years of innovation that you could have had in sectors that are profitable. So what we're trying to make the case here against protectionism is that we understand workers are losing their jobs, but it is misguided to prop up these sectors that in the end are going to cost us more and more money each year to prop up when we could be using those workers, those resources to utilize what is better for the economy in the end. We can create these jobs in profitable sectors. Just look at the tech industry in the United States, what that has done over the past decades in Silicon Valley. That has put America on the global stage at the forefront of technological innovation and reaped massive rewards for the United States and global economy. Yeah, so in in 2018, the United States um, levied a 20% tariff on washing machines imported to the United States on the first 1.2 million, and then it would increase to 50% after that. Now, the problem was this tariff was meant to help protect American jobs and American companies. However, the Wall Street Journal found that each job protected in the United States cost consumers $817 thousand dollars almost a million dollars so when we say that tariffs can like create jobs or protect them it's at a huge expense of the american consumer absolutely so i think the fundamental argument i'm making here is one that's rooted in development economics trade economics is that when we prop up industries that have no profit incentive or have no ability to pursue innovation that costs us more and more each year to sustain. So while in the short term, yes, we are saving American jobs in certain sectors, we are losing out on our comparative advantage where we can be innovating and pursuing technological progress that will help us in the end. But it is true that the negative aspect of trade is that we've lost U.S. manufacturing jobs and displaced American workers have not bounced back. We should not neglect their hardships. But as I said, propping up unprofitable sectors is not sustainable and has costs for the rest of the population. We've talked about how it hurts consumers and prices going up. We've talked about how we have an opportunity cost there of not pursuing sectors such as the tech industry that make a lot of money for the country and help American consumers and workers. And in fact, there's a misdiagnosis of the problem here. Yes, we have lost manufacturing jobs. But the predominant cause for the loss of manufacturing employment has been technological change. It's responsible for 85% of U.S. manufacturing jobs lost. Now, this is inevitable as economies develop. John touched on this earlier. But 
So what we're saying is we shouldn't push back on trade because of jobs, because that's not the number one culprit. But I'm not saying we should also push back on technological change. As growth models have shown in this field, technological change is the number one driver of economic development. It helps us push past diminishing returns where we cannot where we can no longer grow the economy. So what we should be focusing on here is not working against market dynamics. We should not neglect the ubiquitous benefits that we see from trade, which is that innovation, the competition, the lower prices, the improvements of livelihoods. What we should do is correct the externalities, the imperfections. And I'm not trying to diminish job loss as an externality, but in the bigger picture, we need to accept and embrace the benefits and find ways to promote new policies, which have not been promoted before, to help those workers find jobs and promote livelihoods that help them sustain their families. So these issues we're seeing are not new. This has been going on. It's an inevitable part of transforming and developing the economy. But I think it's a knee-jerk reaction to throw on these protectionist tariff policies that discredit the large benefit we receive from trade. We should be approaching this in a way that accepts the benefits and corrects the imperfections so that in the end, we can benefit from innovation, benefit from competition, and also help these displaced workers. From that same piece from the Brookings Institution, you have a number of policy prescriptions that they propose, and and we're not endorsing any one of them, either as an organization or as individuals, but they are good you know, food for thought and um, for the sake of discussion, they're definitely worth talking about. So they talk about things like expanding the earned income tax credit, um, you know, which is a wage subsidy for lower income workers. And, you know, they propose that we loosen the eligibility criteria. You know, right now the EITC is um, virtually unavailable to people that don't have children, which is uh, seen as a big problem. Uh, The second is an extension of the wage insurance program to cover all workers, not just people over 50 in trade adjustment assistance programs. Uh, Another one they say, uh, the next is an increase in the number of apprenticeships. And I would extend that to just increasing access to public charter schools and uh, technical vocational schools. Um, You know, ask any sort of plumber or mason um, you know, who, who's coming next in their business. And many of them will tell you they have no idea. The, the final policy prescription that they propose in their piece is job opportunities for people um, in the infrastructure world, you know, rebuilding roads, bridges, airports, um, building new rail systems and stuff like that. And that, you know, credit where credit is due, the Republican Party has gotten uh, far more serious than it used to be on the issue of infrastructure, um, but basically expand opportunity for people that have been left behind. And that is, um, you know, how we're going to ultimately uh, address some of the shortfalls of a free trade system. Yeah. So kind of to wrap this argument up, I think what we're fundamentally saying here is that international trade is a positive good. It is misguided to work against the market dynamics that have reaped so many rewards for our country, consumers, and workers. We understand, we sympathize with job loss, and we understand and recognize that rehashing old ideas on trade liberalization do not address the problems that we are seeing in society that are causing people 
to speak out against these problems. So what we need to do is take a nuanced approach to reap those benefits and promote solutions with minimal government intervention that can help correct these externalities, help retrain workers, and fix the skills deficit here so that we can do as America what we're best at doing. And exactly, Mike, I think you're spot on with that. And I think, you know, as we look towards the future, I think Gen Z GOP, you know, has a has a place in the Republican Party that push for a more free trade policy. So I know, Colton, you have a lot, you know, quickly to mention on that. So um, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And looking forward into the United States trade policy, 40 years down the road for Gen Z, we're a generation that that wants to compete abroad. I think we have confidence in our like tech abilities in the United States where we don't don't want to be you know sheltered from the outside world. Rather we see it as a great opportunity. Um so as and as I write in my book too, small um tariffs in particular can hurt small businesses. So the startup we're like we're the startup generation. If we're p- putting trade policies in place that make it harder for small businesses to get off the ground and compete abroad. We're ultimately hurting um, the future of our growth. As we look for a trade policy that utilizes the competitive advantages of Gen Z, we should hope for open trade because that's going to let us compete abroad. I strongly believe that American businesses will find a way to compete and not only compete, but win abroad. We just have to have the market access. Colton, I know that you have a book coming out in December called Trade Crusade. Uh, do you want to touch really quickly on how people might be able to pre-order that and check out the great work that you've been doing? Thanks, Mike. Yeah, so right now I'm pre-selling copies of my book that will come out uh, in December. I'm super excited. It's been a complete labor of love and something that I'm very passionate about. And I'd love to share it with you. It goes into a lot more nuance and detail than we were able to get to today. So it's up through pre-sale to the end of the month. We'll share the link with you and um, you can check it out. I'm also doing a qu- live question and answer session for anybody that buys it through uh, through Gen Z GOP. So I'm super excited to share it with you and would love to um, hear your feedback and um, answer your questions in the Q&A. Absolutely. Very excited for that book to come out. So let me just acknowledge again that this was just an intro to trade and what it is why we feel protectionism should not be a policy prescription that we should be proposing, especially on the right. We're just trying to start this conversation, encourage our listeners to become informed on this, and staking our general claim at Gen Z GOP about why we believe that free trade in the end is a positive good for the country. So I want to close with a quote here from a foreign affairs article called The Truth About Trade from Yuri Dadish, because I feel that it kind of sums up the crux of the argument that we're making here. Trade, foreign investment, and outsourcing add to pressure to become more efficient, to weed out the least productive firms, and to force the adoption of more automated technology, which also spread throughout the economy well beyond the directly traded or exposed sectors. In the right conditions, this is good news for economic efficiency and growth. But meanwhile, the demand for unskilled workers declines as the demand for capital and for some categories of skilled workers increases. Unskilled workers whose wages have declined can find new jobs in other typically trade-sheltered sectors, but usually not enough to compensate. The result is rising inequality. 
The reaction to this process, at work over many decades, and the unwillingness of many trade proponents to acknowledge trade's downside, is a visceral anti-trade stance in many quarters, whatever trade deal is on the table, and however advantageous it is on paper. The fierce and widespread resistance to TPP, for example, in the United States, which is already an open economy and which was required to do very little to further open the economy compared to its negotiating partners, can only be understood in this light. The solution to the problem of rising inequality is not to stop trade deals or, for that matter, impede the adoption of new technologies, even if that were possible. And there is only so much that negotiations can do to mitigate the disruptive effects of trade and technology, for example, by providing for longer implementation periods and insisting on basic labor and environmental standards. Outside the trade agenda, there is a long list of social, educational, and fiscal reforms that must be tackled to mitigate inequality. This is not the job of the WTO or of the U.S. Trade Representative, but continued political support for trade deals, whether regional or multilateral, does depend on a more honest political debate about trade and inequality and on better policies to mitigate its worst effects. So I think this wraps it up perfectly because a lot of the criticism that the trade proponents like us receive is that we are discrediting the negative impacts. We understand them, but we are trying at Gen Z GOP to frame more honest and open discussion about policies that are best suited for this country. And we believe generally that trade is a positive good, but we should also address the nuances and mitigate the bad. So I want to encourage people to do their own research. There are great articles from think tanks, outlets like Foreign Policy and Foreign Affairs are also great as well. And there's even a podcast from CSIS called The Trade Guys, which dives in to a lot more specific topics on trade issues. I want to thank everybody for listening, acknowledging that we are just trying to start an open and honest, fact-driven, stats-driven conversation here about trade. And I want to encourage everyone to follow our social media. We have social media specifically for the podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram for that is Gen Z GOP Pod. And for the organization at large, Twitter and Instagram is Gen Z GOP Org. And you can also find us on Facebook. And we look forward to speaking to everyone next week on a new podcast episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a great week. Oh,